You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. In our last lecture, we treated the Council of Trent and what it did to reform Catholic life and to define Catholic doctrine. And in effect, what Trent was doing was calling for a new type of Christian, a new type of Catholic man and woman who would be aware of and alert to the teachings of their faith and would be practicing, in other words, doing their best to keep themselves in a state of grace. But the decrees of the Council of Trent have life only if they are translated into action. And that was the work then that was facing the Christian world once the council had disbanded. And one of the worst mistakes we can make is to think that because the council declared something to be so or because the council ordered something to happen that it was actually so or that it actually happened. Uh, the history of the church is full of instances where councils declared and Christians or popes or bishops ignored. And so in this lecture today, I want to treat what the popes in the immediate aftermath of the council did to translate it into action. Uh, and as was to be expected, the council did not treat every single thing or did not produce every document that it wanted to see. It left certain things to, the, to the, their successors or the successor popes who would come on the scene. And for the period immediately after the council, there are three popes who are are of special significance and importance. The first is Pius V. He is a saint, and he was pope from 1566 to 1572. The second is Gregory XIII, who was pope from 1572 to 1585, and the last is Sixtus V, Pope from 1585 to 1590. Uh, so it's a we'll be treating a period roughly of 25 years or what we can call the immediate aftermath of the council. And it was to the good fortune of the church that she was blessed by three, we can say, counter-reformation popes three good popes, each with great strengths and each with weaknesses, but all three contributed great, greatly to carrying on the work of the council. It may be of significance that two of them were members of religious orders. Pope St. Pius V was a Dominican and Pope Sixtus V was a Franciscan. Uh, we will take them in order. Uh, starting with Pius V, who became Pope in 1566 and died in 1572. There are a number of things that he had to do in the immediate aftermath of the Council. Perhaps the best thing to do is simply to list them and then to say a word or two about each. There's an index of forbidden books in 1564. There's the catechism, the Roman catechism, or as 
popularly called the Catechism of the Council of Trent in 1566. The Breviary was revised and published in 1568, and the Missal was revised and published in 1570. Now, to take them in order, the index, the, this really stems from uh, the, Paul the uh, Paul IV, uh, Carafa, who was pope in the 1550s and had set up an index of forbidden books, books that were forbidden to Christians to read, to Catholics to read, without special dispensation. Uh, this is a subject for study in and of itself, and uh, it's doubtful if we would have had something like the index if there had been no printing press. In other words, if books were still being produced by hand. But books could be multiplied and by the standards of the time, multiplied and published quite quickly. And both Protestants and Catholics made use of books to propagate or to spread or to defend their faith and their beliefs. And the council thought it right, and the pope here thought it right, to declare certain books as being dangerous to the faith. In other words, that it would be better for Catholics not to read them. In 1566, the Catechism of the Church was published. And again, this comes directly from the council, and the idea behind it being to put into the hands of what the ordinary parish priest, a manual, something that he could use, wherein he would find Catholic doctrine clearly stated and Catholic morality clearly stated, along with reasons given for it. And that this was found in the Catechism of the, of the Church, or as it is popularly called, the Catechism of the Council of Trent. Uh, Something similar happened in, in, in the wake of or after Vatican II. There were, catechisms began to appear so that what we Christians, Catholics, and non-Catholics could see uh, the effects of the council incorporated in the catechism as well as the tradition of the church laid out in her teaching in the catechism. Then... The events of 1568, the breviary was revised, the official prayer book of the church, and the official prayer book for the priests of the church. So it's an instrument in the hand or to promote priestly piety, uh, priestly sanctity. And finally, in 1570, the missal was revised and published. And uh, both, both of these had a long run in the uh, Christian, in the Catholic Church. Uh, but these would be tangible results of the council, something that we could pick up, hold in our hand, and look at. Uh, now, the Pope did other things, things that would reflect his own personality. If you've ever seen pictures of him, he's, uh, he was a hard and a grim-faced man and uh, strict with himself and strict with others. He had, been, he had worked for the Roman Inquisition at one time and he tended not to be too tolerant. And it, we should repeat here that the popes were not tolerant, the Protestants were not tolerant. The toleration was not considered a virtue. And Pius V took steps through decrees and other means to enforce clerical residence. He was very much against the French Protestants, who were called Huguenots, 
and very much then in favor of the Catholic cause. And his greatest achievement as Pope was to put together a coalition. I guess it would not be out of place to say that the coalition could be in some ways, in some ways only compared to the coalition that President Bush put together in 1990 and 91. Uh, and this coalition that the Pope and Philip II, the King of Spain, put together was to fight the Turk and to fight the Turk on, on the seas or in the Mediterranean and it led to the Battle of Lepanto in 1571 which was the great victory of the Christian fleet over the Ottoman fleet and it meant that the Mediterranean would not become an Islamic lake and uh, from the uh, ingratitude for the victory of the Christian troops at Lepanto, Pius V uh, inaugurated the Feast of the Holy Rosary. His greatest uh, failure, or perhaps it would be better to say his greatest mistake, was that he excommunicated Queen Elizabeth I of England. Uh, he did that by a bull called Regnans in Excelsis in 1570. And as I said, it was a mistake because he would have been far better off, or we can see this quite clearly now, that he would have been far better off leaving events in England unfold. But the queen, when she became queen after the death of Queen, queen Mary, played things close to the vest, and it was not clear whether she was a Catholic or a Protestant. But year by year, it became more clear that she was not Catholic and that she favored the, the Protestant side, or at least the side that would be f f resisting or the, the Catholics. And perhaps with bad advice, the Pope decided to excommunicate her, to release her subjects from obedience to her. And this gave rise to a very very serious and unfortunate debate among the Jesuit missionaries and the other Catholic missionaries in England, whether they should, at one time it was even said that they were plotting, or there was a plot to assassinate the queen. Pius V was followed by Gregory XIII, who was Pope from 1572 to 1572. 85. And uh, he is probably one pope who is known to most people today, even if they are not Christian, but they may not know how he is known to them or why they know about him. He is the man who reformed the calendar in the year 1582. And it is the calendar that uh, is universally practiced or followed today, but it was not always followed in his day. Uh, the calendar that had, was in use up until the year 1582 was the Julian calendar. The ca in other words, the reform of the calendar that was done by Julius Caesar some 1600 years earlier. It was a good calendar, but it had faults or defects, and it had a major fault by the year 1580, and the astronomers and scientists knew this, and it was, it was behind. It had fallen behind by 10 days, and the longer nothing was done, the further behind it would get. So the Pope, through astronomers, decided that he would reform the calendar and publish the reform. 
and this was published in the year 1582, and it, was the, it went into effect in 1582. Uh, an easy way to remember this is to take the two dates, October 4th and October 15th. What happened was that on the October the 4th, men and women say in the Papal States, went to bed, and they went to bed on the 4th of October. They woke up in the morning, and it was the 15th of October. So, and that is the way the, uh, the, the calendar was rectified. Uh, now, we're in the heart of the Reformation, or the heart of the Counter-Reformation. And what does, uh, this, reforma uh, this Reformation, or reform of the calendar, was not accepted by everyone. Quite simply put, Catholic states tended to accept the, the reform. Protestant states did not. That meant that England did not accept the reform of the calendar. And that meant that when English colonists came to the what is now the United States or to Canada, they were following not the Gregorian calendar, but still following the the Julian calendar, and it was not until the year 1752 that this calendar was accepted in England and in English-speaking lands. Gregory is also, as Pope, is known for the support that he gave, especially to the Jesuits and the Capuchins. He, for instance, he allowed the Capuchins to cross the Alps and to go into Switzerland and France in the Germanys in the, in the year 1574. But this will be the topic of the next lecture, the, the work of the Jesuits and the Capuchins. Uh, Gregory is also known for the work that he did with papal nuncios, or taking steps to put himself into touch through nuncios with what was going on in other countries. In other words, he saw by this time in the 1570s, it was quite clear that Protestantism was not going to go away, no matter how much Catholics may have wanted it to. Uh, and the, the Pope wanted to have his finger on and to know what was going on, so he began to train formally uh, men in the service of the church through diplomacy. In other words, this is the, be it's the beginning of the Vatican diplomatic service. And to this day, it is, the Vatican diplomatic service is a first-rate diplomatic service. And the men who are in it, generally they are priests or bishops, are very well trained. Gregory also took steps to implement or to promote the implementation of the decree of the Council of Trent on seminaries. Uh, Trent called for each bishop to have a seminary in his own diocese. Now, the, it's strange, but by in the 16th century, and to the men and women of that time, it was the modern times. In, say, in 1550, the, ch the church had nothing specific in place for the training of her clergy. By our standards, the training was haphazard. It might be well done, it might not be well done. By those who saw what was at stake and took it seriously, the training would be, would be well done. And there is no doubt that the best trained priests, say in the period before the Reformation and in the Reformation and Counter-Reformation period, were the priests of the mendicant orders. And they all had houses in their provinces 
where their members, or their young members, the recruits, studied first philosophy and then theology, and then after ordination might, would go on, the selected ones, to get higher degrees in theology so that they could preach and teach. And these were the, frequently they were called clericates or study houses, especially of the Dominicans and the Franciscans, also of the Augustinians and the Carmelites. And what Trent did in its decree on seminaries was to take the practice of the mendicant orders and to adopt it for herself. In other words, she told each bishop, set up this seminary or this seedbed, which is the meaning of the word seminary, so that you will have good priests serving the people in your diocese. And uh, it takes almost a hundred years for this decree of the Council of Trent to really take full effect. Uh, it takes effect in, immediately in some places or districts or regions, but to say that seminaries are in place and producing a certain type of priest, uh, we cannot say that until we get into, deep into the, uh, or well into the 17th century, around 1650 or so. And finally, it should be noted that we know that the occasion for the Reformation was the preaching of an indulgence for the building of St. Peter's Basilica. In 1582, the dome of St. Peter's was finished, but there was more, more work still to be done. One thing that we can see at work after the Council of Trent, in Pius V to some extent, in Gregory XIII, we, it has a little more, and then the next, the man to come, Sixtus V, is what they do to Rome. Rome is the city of the popes. And until 1870, it was the city of the popes. And that brings us then to the successor of Gregory XIII, Sixtus V, who was pope from 1585 to 1590, and he was a friar minor conventual. And his pontificate is the height, really, of the counter-reform or the counter-reformation papacy. Perhaps it uh, would be best to say something that was Sixtus did that was not too good. He really botched the edition of the Vulgate. One thing called for by the Council of Trent was a new edition of the Vulgate so that the faithful and could be sure that they had the true scriptures in their hands. And Sixtus interfered in the work that was done had it published early, or did work on it himself, and did not do a good job, and it was out and it was making the church, in one sense, almost a laughing stock. So his successor, Clement VIII, recalled it and then reissued it in 1592. And once that was issued in 1592, then translations could be made from it. But what we associate, above all, with Sixtus V is the reform that he made in the Roman Curia. He reorganized it and set it up as congregations. And it has his reform of the Roman Curia in the 1580s has been called perhaps the greatest administrative reform in history. What he did was he reined it in and he began then to establish papal control over the Curia. 
Something similar was done after Vatican II by Paul VI, who was in one way a child or a product of the Curia and knew it inside out. And uh, he reformed or made significant changes in the Curia. What Sixtus did was to set up the famous, or what became the famous Roman congregations. Congregations to deal with various aspects of both church and state government. In other words, ecclesiastical government and, and secular government. There'd be a, a congregation for the fabric of St. Peter's, maintaining the buildings. Uh, there would be a, a congregation for bishops in that. And uh, the most famous congregation of all was not set up by Sixtus V, though. It came only later in the year 1622, and that was the, the co congregation or Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, the congregation for the spread of the faith. By an odd twist, it has given to us in English, our word propaganda. But the original meaning of the word was to spread, to preach, and to spread the faith. There was a special congregation set up because of the New World and the new lands where that had not heard the gospel and where the gospel had to be preached. He also took steps to control the proliferation of cardinals. It was Sixtus V who set the number of cardinals at 70. And that number held down into the lifetime of most of us today, that there would never be more than, than 70 cardinals. And uh, the city of Rome. Sixtus was a very, very energetic man and worker, and the modern city of Rome, the Rome that most of us love, if we have seen it, is his creation. It's not that of the Renaissance. Many people think that the Rome we know came from the Renaissance. The Rome that we know and that we see when we visit it is Counter-Reformation Rome, and more than any one man or, or pope, Sixtus is the one responsible for that. And he took steps also to revive Rome as a Christian city. In other words, he took to heart some of the, uh, the comments and the recommendations of the Concilium de Emendanda Ecclesia. But he laid it out. He laid out the streets. He leveled buildings and what began the transformation of the city, which would be continued by his successors. In his book on the Counter-Reformation, Marvin O'Connell, when he comes to Sixtus V, titles the section on him Sixtus the Great. And... I think that O'Connell is on the mark when he says that Sixtus has not received his due as a great pope. And one historian has said that he was the greatest practical organizer ever to occupy the papal throne. And I think it's significant that he achieved so much in so short a time. His pontificate was short, five years, but we are still feeling the effects of it today, and more than that, we can still see with our eyes the effects of some of the changes that Sixtus V wrought in the city of the Pope's Rome.
I mentioned that Pope Gregory XIII promoted both the, the Jesuits and the Capuchins. Uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I should say that in this, before going into this lecture, which is on the Jesuits and the Capuchins, I should say that I am a, am a Capuchin, a member of the order that I will be speaking about today. Before starting the lecture, I want to give you a few bibliographical items. The first is the article by H.O.V. Evanet titled, The New Orders, and it's found in the Cam New Cambridge Modern History, Volume 2, at pages 275 to 300. And uh, Evanet treats principally, but not exclusively, the Jesuits and the Capuchins in that article. Uh, there is a very wide and vast literature on the Jesuits, much of it in, in English. And I just simply want to mention one or two or a few items that you might find helpful. Uh, the best history of the Society of Jesus in English is by William Bangert. And it's called The History of the Society of Jesus. It's the second edition, published in St. Louis in 1986. Uh, also published in St. Louis in, back in 1970 was St. Ignatius of Loyola, The Constitutions of the Society of Jesus, translated and edited by George E. Gantz, G-A-N-S-S. Uh, a recent work is by Joseph Munitiz, M-U-N-I-T-I-Z, and Philip Endean, E-N-D-E-A-N. They are translators. The title of the work is St. Ignatius of Loyola, Personal Writings. And it was published in London by Penguin in 1996. Joseph Munities is a Jesu an English Jesuit of Basque extraction. In other words, the same nationality as Ignatius Loyola himself. John W. O'Malley, the first Jesuits, published in Cambridge, Massachusetts, by Harvard University Press in 1993. And finally, uh, this one... I think would be rather hard to come by in this country, but it's good, by J.J. Scarsbrick, S-C-A-R-I-S-B-R-I-C-K. And it's titled, The Jesuits and the Catholic Reformation. And it's, it's a pamphlet published by the Historical Association in London in 1989. For the Capuchins, it's much harder to... Uh, to come by material in English. Uh, the only history of the Capuchins in English is that by Father Cuthbert Hess, titled The Capuchins, A Contribution to the History of the Counter-Reformation. It's in two volumes, published originally in 1928, reissued in 1971. If you Look at J.C. Olin's The Catholic Reformation, Savonarola to Ignatius Loyola. You will find in there a complete edition of the Capuchin Constitutions of 1536, which lays out their, not just their way of life, but the ideals of the order. Uh, there is a, a vast literature on the Capuchins in Italian. If you can read Italian, and the Italian form of the name is now is well known now with the popularity of cappuccino in this country. Cappuccino being both the, the Italian word for both the friar and the coffee.
you may also want to look at articles on either the Jesuits or the Capuchins or members of them in the New Catholic Encyclopedia and in the Oxford Encyclopedia of the Reformation. It's appropriate, I think, to begin any lecture in a course on the Counter-Reformation, any lecture on the Jesuits and the Capuchins, by saying at the start that customarily both orders, Jesuits and Capuchins, are viewed as and treated as counter-Reformation orders by historians on both sides of the confession, on both confessional sides, Protestant and Catholic. And so it's only right to say at the very beginning that neither order was founded to counteract or to oppose the Reformation. There were other causes or things at work which brought the Jesuits into existence and which brought the Capuchin reform into existence. Once they were in existence and had proven themselves and to be loyal to the Pope, to the Church, then the Popes reached out and the members of the order themselves reached out and began to do work that would promote the Church, not just in Catholic lands, but would oppose the inroads of the Protestants in lands such as Germany, France, Poland, the, uh, the empire. Uh, we can start with the, the Jesuits. Their founder was St. Ignatius of Loyola. He was a Basque and born about the year 1491. And if his early life parallels very much the early life, or somewhat, not very much, but somewhat the early life of St. Francis of Assisi. They were both, Ignatius was a soldier, Francis was a soldier, wanted to be a soldier. Uh, Francis was captured in battle and put into prison. Ignatius was wounded in battle and put into the prison of really, not a hot, a room where he had, was laid up. Uh, because of a wound that he received at the Battle of Pamplona. And he wanted to, he had time on his hands, the story is well known, so there was nothing there where he was staying except the lives of the saints. So for one, literally for want of something better to do, he started to read these lives. And he was especially struck by the life of St. Francis. And then he went on and he decided that he was going, he wanted to be a priest. Now, he was at Pamplona in 1521. It means he was already 30 years old, which is advancing in age for the early 16th century. Uh, but he decided that he would be a priest, and he went, what many men today are doing at an older age, he went to school and studied philosophy and theology to prepare himself for ordination to the priesthood. And at the same time, he saw himself called to a specific form of life. And it was a form of life in which he would be doing, uh, he came to this gradually missionary work, but above all, he would put himself literally at the feet of the Pope, at the service of the Pope, and the service of the church. And that is what St. Francis had done 300, some 300 years earlier in Italy. And Ignatius went and studied his theology in Paris. He gained some recruits. They gathered around, around him, and uh, they went to Rome and received the approval of the Pope. They had hoped to go to the Holy Land they were prevented because of the uh, inroads being made by the Turks 
1543, they were given permission to take in recruits and to expand. And the basis or the foundation of the way of life that Ignatius was founding was to be found in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 10, and the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 9. And that's the same foundation that uh, served for Francis of Assisi and his way of life. What Ign Ignatius gave a certain military cast to the order that he was founding. And he was founding a, an order really of clerics, the canonical or legal term for them later is clerks regular, priests living together by a rule. And one of the characteristics of the Jesuits was that they took a special vow of obedience to the Pope. And this helped their success very much. Then in the year 1548, they began to teach schools, or they were called colleges, and missionary work and teaching quickly became two of their main works or jobs, part of their vocation for the church. And right before the Council of Trent ended, but after the death of St. Ignatius, uh, in the year 1560, the order began their crusade. They went out, literally putting themselves at the service of the church and going into Holland, to France, to Hungary, Germany, Bohemia, England, and Poland, promoting the faith, preaching the faith. And it has been said that they saved Poland for the faith. And the, the name Jesuit, of course, is derisive. It is a nickname. The true name of the order that St. Ignatius founded was the Society of Jesus. And he wanted to, to avoid having the order named after himself because no founder of a religious order would do that, but and historically it has happened. The order that St. Dominic founded is called the Order of Preachers, but it's popularly known as the Dominicans. The order that St. Francis founded is the Order of Friars Minor, popularly called Franciscans. So St. Ignatius wanted to avoid that, and so he called it the Society of Jesus, it reflects, obviously, a devotion, a devotion on the part of St. Ignatius to the name of Jesus. And Calvin and then others began to use this Jesus as a term against the Jesuits, and they came up with the word Jesuit. And universally today, that is the, way that, the name that is used for them. The formal name remains the Society of Jesus. The other order involved here in the Counter-Reformation to a large extent is the Capuchins. And the Capuchins have nothing to do with the Reformation in their origin. They spring from one of those movements, some might say quarrels, that seem to have been endemic to the Franciscans over the centuries. And with the dissatisfaction that a number of men had with the way Franciscan life was being lived in Italy. And they began then to push for reform, or they thought that the best thing for them to do was to break away from the order that they were in and see if they couldn't reform themselves. And they, there were three of them involved. They got the permission of the Pope to do that, and the order took off from there. It had a very uh, dicey history at the beginning. Uh, the, uh, 
the Franciscan group from which they, they broke away did its best to suppress them and because members of the order were transferring to the new group and the chances were good that they would have been suppressed had it not been for the interference or the patronage of two women. The first was a woman named Caterina Chiba who happened to be the niece of the Pope and she told the Pope that she liked these men and that he shouldn't touch them. And uh, so they survived. And another woman who promoted them, especially when some were out again to suppress them in the 1530s, was Vittoria Colonna, who was a blue stocking and well known in certain circles in Italy. Probably the most distinctive thing about the Capuchin to a non-Capuchin would be uh, the same as for the Jesuit. It's the name itself. People will say, well, what does the name Capuchin mean? Some would say, well, it comes from Capuccio, the cowl or the capuche that the friars wear, that it gives rise then to the name Capuccino, or in English, Capuchin. But we're not sure. No, no. All we know is that the people, and probably the children this, on the street, started to call men who were dressed this way Capuccini, and the name stuck. And so the Capuchins are a, a branch of the Franciscans, but they do not have the word Franciscan uh, in, uh, as part of their identity. In Europe, you simply say Capuchin. In the United States and Canada, it's necessary for the most part to add Franciscan. Uh, the reform movement was opposed quite naturally by the members, by the order from which they were breaking away. And those, uh, the, Fra the Franciscans went to the Pope and had to got the Pope to do two things, to restrict the Capuchins to Italy and to forbid members of the, their order to transfer to the Capuchins. That was in the 1530s and it had unforeseen results. It meant that they had, the Capuchins had to fall back on their own to elaborate quite clearly what their goals were and they did that in their constitutions of 1536, which are found in Olin's work. And then they were restricted to Italy until the year 1574, when they were allowed to cross the Alps. And from that time on, then they are at work throughout Europe. In fact, you might say that we're Wherever the Jesuits are, you're likely to find the Capuchins. Wherever the Capuchins are, you're likely to find the Jesuits. Uh, the Capuchins were especially noted for their missionary work in France and Austria and Germany, for their work among the poor, and also in a special way for their work during the plagues. That's really what... Uh, impressed Caterina Chibo and said that these were good men and their work in the plagues appears in a classic novel of Italian literature called The Betrothed by Alessandro Manzoni. They also were connected with certain royal families, especially with the Habsburgs. And in general, we might say there are always exceptions that the Jesuits were working with the kings and with the queens and with the courts, realizing that the best way to influence the people was through their rulers. Be the equivalent today of going and getting, working with the media and getting your message out through the media. Uh, the Jesuits, they influenced through their teaching, through schools. A very interesting exercise would be to get a book uh, that would list the European universities in existence today and to see 
how many of them were originally Jesuit colleges? And, the, and then the Jesuits were popular preachers also. The Capuchins were more generally popular preachers, although they did work also with the, the royal families. And in some ways, if you want to see what is happening in the Counter-Reformation, I mean, well, not in the classroom or not in Rome or not in, say, a chancery of a diocese or that, but among the people, if you can, get statistics and find out if there were Jesuits there or if there were Capuchins there because they were generally seen as the, the principal arm of the Pope or of the Counter-Reformation, the Jesuits especially, uh, but both of them. And uh, it's interesting that throughout the 16th and into the 17th century, uh, as far as recruitment goes, they are about neck and neck. Generally, there are a few more Capuchins than there are Jesuits. But they both quickly became very large orders, over 20, 000, approximately 20,000 uh, members. And they were both, each in its own way, at the service of the church. Perhaps the, well, one way that we might gain insight into the reputation and some might say the fame or the acclaim or the name enjoyed by these two orders in the 17th century can be found in one of the poet, poems of the English poet John Donne. Donne was reared a Catholic, but he became an Anglican and was ordained and eventually became the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London and he is a major English poet, as we know. And among his poems is one called The Will, in which he singles out different parts of society to receive his property or to receive some aspect of his character or some of his personal belongings. Uh, the poem is filled with irony but what I find interesting is that only two religious orders are mentioned by name in the poem, the Jesuits and the Capuchins. And here is part of the poem. It's titled, The Will, and he is bequeathing. He says, my constancy I to the planets give, my truth to those who at the court do live. My ingenuity, that is my frankness, my ingenuity and openness to Jesuits, to buffoons, my pensiveness, my silence to any who abroad hath been, my money to a capish. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.